Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Welcome to another episode of HashiCast. This one is a bit special for us here at HashiCorp. Uh, this week, we, it's our privilege to welcome Seth Fargo, uh, who's a developer advocate at Google, also a friend of the show. Uh, Seth has previously worked at HashiCorp, Chef Software, Custom Inc., and a few Pittsburgh-based startups. He's also the author of the book, Learning Chef, and is passionate about reducing inequality in technology. So welcome, Seth. Uh, this one is a brief introduction, but please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, the floor is all yours. Sure. Uh, thanks, Mishra. Thanks, uh, Nick, for having me. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. Uh, like Mishra said, I'm a developer advocate at Google, uh, specifically Google Cloud, focusing on the infrastructure and operations space. Uh, like Mishra said, prior to that, I actually was the founding member of the technical advocacy team over at HashiCorp. Um, so I was Nick and Mishra before uh before they existed. Um, <laughs> I, um, so, you know, definitely a HashiCorp alum. Um, I work a lot in the infrastructure and operations space. So particularly around tools like Terraform and Vault and Console and Nomad, um, but also tools like, you know, Chef and Puppet and Ansible, things from the configuration management space. Um, but then a lot with containers as well. So, you know, Kubernetes, um, you know, container runtimes, et cetera. And kind of the the complexities that come with managing those complex systems uh, at scale. Today, uh, I'm sure we're going to go and kind of go through your work at HashiCorp as well. As you said, like one of the really early members uh, in the company, and also like uh, we still follow a lot of the work that you've done, which is pretty awesome for us because we have a blueprint that we can kind of follow, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so today, we are going to go kind of take a journey through your experiences over the years. Uh, so we'll start with where it all began. And I want to ask you is, uh, tell us what pulled you into, you know, the world of like writing or building software. And and now uh, your position as like uh, an advocate in the, in the technology industry. Like, uh, so tell us all about that. I think there's a few factors. Uh, so when I was an undergrad at Carnegie Mellon, uh, just a low little, little undergraduate student, um, the program I was in was heavily invested in open source software. It was actively encouraged that not only would you write code, but that you would open source that code. It was actively encouraged that you would consume other people's open source code and create kind of a vibrant ecosystem. And for context, this is really before open source really took off. Like GitHub existed, but it was still in its infancy. This is back in like 2009, 2010. Um, you know, we didn't have like integrated CIs and pull requests were just kind of a thing that existed. They weren't nearly as popular as they were today. And I quickly found that like, yes, I was writing code. I was getting A's in my classes for the record. Um, <laughs> but what I really enjoyed was interacting with people in the tools that I created in kind of this open source community through GitHub issues and pull requests. Um, I open sourced this tool called um, ISBNDB. It was a Ruby gem that queried the um, 
whatever ISBN stands for, the book numbers, the 13 and, and 10 digit book numbers. So that if you had a barcode for a textbook, hypothetically, like a college textbook, you could find that textbook, all the author information, all the metadata that had been published about it, and then also find it on different sites. Because it's 2009, Amazon also wasn't that popular at the time. People were still buying textbooks and things from you know other locations, including, I don't know if you all are aware of this, um, there used to be physical bookstores <laughs> that people would walk into and hand money or you know a credit card um, so yeah, it was a different time, different time entirely. But uh, what I found is, you know, over the years, I've kind of flipped back and forth between being like a traditional software engineer and kind of an advocate. And what inevitably happens is like, even if I become a software engineer for a short period of time, um, I write really cool things. Um, you know, I have a computer science degree. I can do that. But I get more benefit and, and I get more enthusiasm out of taking that thing on the road, blogging about it, talking about it, writing presentations, it, and, and basically showing it off to people. And I think that's really why I like the developer advocacy role. But then there's the flip side of that, which I think a lot of people don't see um, because as advocates, we're very you know forward facing. Everyone sees what we do on stages and in blog posts, but there's a whole other component to developer advocacy or just advocacy in general, which is I have this cool thing. Maybe I wrote it. Maybe someone else wrote it. But yes, I'm like, I'm talking about it. I'm trying to get people to use it, but I'm also getting their feedback. I'm trying to understand their pain points. I'm trying to understand what the next version of this tool looks like. What, what features and functionality are missing? Where are things broken? And then I go back to my organization and I, I take that feedback and sometimes I have to massage it a little bit. You know, sometimes <laughs> people's feedback is a little more abrasive than I would give to a product team directly, but you massage that feedback and you give it to them for prioritization. And in a way, you're kind of like a product manager, a pro- product manager or a product owner for the community, um, where you're representing their needs at the table among you know paying customers and internal stakeholders, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I think that role that you talked about the the, the flip side of uh, being a developer advocate. I think that role is not an uh, an easy one because like you you are being a you are playing a devil's advocate in your company and you are trying to. Uh, you know, trying to trying to make sure like, you know, at least like the direction of the project and the things that we are building and we're working uh, so hard to build is resonating with an, with the audience or the practitioners. And I think that that part, I've personally found it really difficult to kind of funnel, um, you know, funnel the feedback, filter it and then kind of get it back and and, and talk about it in a way that's like actually consumable by product owners. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that that you brought that up. And th- that story that, as you said, like not many people see that side of developer advocacy and I'm glad you you care about it so much. Um, so then, I think I think then after uh, after university, I think you joined Chef, uh, and uh, I know like Chef's known for its tools like you know Chef and Inspect, and and more recently Habitat. Um, so what was your experience like at Chef, and what were the areas you were focused um, at Chef? Yeah, so. Actually, before I joined Chef, I worked at a place called Custom Inc. Okay. Um, there's like a 100% chance that you have a t-shirt from customink.com yes. somewhere <laughs> in your closet. Um, but when I worked there, I was an intern and then a, a, a professional contractor for a little bit. And they were pretty heavy users of Chef at the time. And I found some gaps in the ecosystem. Um, so I wrote this open source tool called Fohi um, that basically collected machine data and made it open source. Think like a giant JSON payload about systems like CPU usage and memory and users and packages, but open source so that you could query it. Um, And that really was like my foyer into the Chef community. I think it's ultimately one of the reasons I got hired at Chef. Um, And when I joined Chef, I was originally 
um, I joined early. Uh, I graduated college a semester early and I wasn't supposed to start until June. So it's like January 3rd and I pick up the phone and call my hiring manager and I'm like, so I know I have this offer, but I kind of graduated and need a job. Can I start sooner? And they pulled some strings and I was supposed to start on the community engineering team, but I actually started earlier on the sales enablement team. So I was basically a, I guess what you would call like a, uh, sales engineer, um, but I didn't visit customers. I was doing a lot of like backend portfolio development so that when the salespeople would go on site, they would have collections of resources. I started the Learn Chef campaign as a result of that, um, which is, grew very, very popular. It was an online tool where you could learn chef in an interactive way. Uh, we had hangouts where random people from the internet could join at all different time zones, and I hosted those. Um, and then around June and July, when my real job was supposed to start, I transitioned over to the community engineering team. Um, I worked a lot on the open source tools in Chef, both Chef itself, the Chef core, but also um, Berkshelf. I was one of the core original authors of Berkshelf, which is a dependency manager for Chef cookbooks. Um, I'm still one of the maintainers for Chef Spec and Fohi, which is a unit testing framework for Chef. Um, I have so much love for, for that tool. Unit testing and Chef was like the, the for, for me, coming from a developer's background, to start using infrastructure as code with Chef and then realizing you can do cool stuff like unit testing just blew my mind. So I, I personally thank you very much for that tool. Not, not a problem, Nick. That's what I'm here for. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, kind of following along that testing line, um, I was one of the core contributors to Test Kitchen um, and a lot of the drivers for Test Kitchen. Um, so basically, I guess you could say that my job at Chef was very much ecosystem related. Um, you know, very rarely did I actually contribute to Core Chef, but I wrote a ton of cookbooks. I wrote a ton of plugins or ecosystem tools that really helped enable other people to use Chef well. And then uh, for about a year, I transitioned onto the release engineering team. Um, I effectively was Jenkins as a service. Um, Every so company has Chef it. has this. Yeah. <laughs> Chef has this. <laughs> Chef has this really interesting problem where, um, you know, they're primarily written in Ruby, the, the Chef software is. And you need to compile Ruby against a bunch of different target operating systems, you know, Solaris and AIX and Windows and Linux and Darwin. And um, they don't have the luxury that like Go has, which is you can do that on one build machine. Um, so you need a huge matrix of different Jenkins followers to build these and aggregate them and tag them and get them into Artifactory and eventually expose them via, you know, apt and yum repositories. Uh, so I was working a lot with that on a really great team of people. Um, to, to make sure that people could get chef in whatever way that they wanted to get chef. My one question from from uh, what we were discussing about about community is that like I think I still feel that chef communities is like one of the the biggest communities in terms of like infrastructure as code config management um, has a you know a lot of different kind of personas that it kind of targets. Like, what did you learn about? Uh, you know, the people that use Chef every day, like what was like the fundamental truth that you kind of came to is like, okay, so this is the the one thing that just makes them all tick. What would you say that would be? Um, I don't know if there's really one thing that makes everyone tick. I think there's like a vast majority of people who are interested in solving their own problems. Um, I think that's really the crux of like the infrastructure as code movement is this idea that, you know, prior to Chef and Puppet and other tools, there were some companies out there that were trying to sell you an ocean. Um, 
And I think what Chef and Puppet and Ansible and Salt do well is they don't sell you oceans, they sell you Legos. And then they sell you a couple different schemas. One is the Starship Enterprise. One is just like the little Smurf dude. Like they're right. They, they give you recipes, um, no pun intended on the chef thing. They, they give you a series of steps um, to take to compose those Legos into something that works for you. I think that's like the impetus that I learned working in the config management and infrastructure as code space is that everyone everyone's infrastructure is a special snowflake. A lot of people like to think, you know, oh, we want to look like Google. We want to look like Facebook. We want to look like Amazon. But the fact of the matter is, if you're not the world's largest search engine and ad agency, if you're not the world's largest online retailer, if you're not the world's largest social network, you just don't have the same problems. And that's okay, right? And there's definitely things that we can learn there. And there's a lot of sharing of knowledge that can be done. But um, I think Legos provide building blocks that let people build the things that work best for them at the stage in their um, the life cycle of their company, right? Like a startup's requirements are very different than a midsize or very different than an enterprise. So, okay, transitioning a little bit. And then you, I think you joined um, HashiCorp, which is like the most amazing thing. And, and I think uh, you were one of the early employees. So I think you were employee number four, uh, which is amazing. So tell us about your first week at HashiCorp. And I think, I believe you worked on something called console template as their onboarding project. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's back up before we bring up the PTSD. Okay. Um, so when I when I left Chef, um, I took about a month off, um, just because there were some negative experiences in the community. Right? There's a lot of positive experiences, but also negative experiences. Uh, the fact of the matter is, there are just some not nice people in the world. Um, and when I left, uh, like Giganom and a couple other places, like picked up an article, and a bunch of companies reached out. They were like, "Oh, come work for us! Come work for us!" Um, and I had met Mitchell at ChefConf in like 2014, 2013. Um, and we had talked back and forth. We were DMing on Twitter. We texted a few times. Um, but he called me, which was weird. Like, we don't call people anymore. Um, he called me and he was like, hey, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm good. And he was actually the only company, I should say, that reached out and asked if I was okay. Um, and I told him, you know, like I'm taking a month off and he's like, yeah, that's fine. Um, like whenever you're ready, like, like we're doing this thing, Jack and Armand and I are like starting this company and like HashiCorp didn't exist at the time. There was like Vagrant and a VMware plugin. Like we're going to do this plugin thing. And like, you know, we have some plans, but like, just promise me that before you go work somewhere that like, you'll talk to me and like, give me a call. So I did that. I took some time off. I called Mitchell. I talked with Jack and Armand. They decided to hire me. Um, I still don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I joined, uh, I flew out to San Francisco. Um, this was like pre-series A funding, right? So there's no money. So we stay in an Airbnb because San Francisco hotels are like $800 a night. Um, and I go in for like my first day and the HashiCorp office, uh, sorry, closet is a <laughs> conference room that we were subletting from uh, this other company. Um, it was very weird. They were never there. Um, so we had this conference room, just like a round table boardroom type thing. And day one, I come in and Armand and Mitchell give me kind of like the grand scheme of things. So this is like 2014 and they're already talking about like Nomad and Vault and secrets management and the strategy for how Packer is going to put Terraform on the map and, you know, deploying immutable infrastructure. And I'm like, what did I sign up for? I was just brain dead after day one. So then day two comes around and Armand's like, yeah, so like consoles, like 
not really getting a lot of traction in the market. And we think it's because there's this gap um, in this this thing. Like, could you take a look at it? And at the time, he had written this thing called Console HA Proxy. Uh, it's still on GitHub. That is like dumping HA Proxy config from console in a very specific format. Um, so Armand comes up with this genius idea that what we really need is an abstraction of console. We need a templating language where people can basically query for different information from console and put it in a file in any way that they want. And it needs to be kept up to date basically instantly. Um, keep in mind that I had written like six lines of Go <laughs> before I joined HashiCorp, right? Like no idea what I'm doing. And Armand's like, yeah, so I think for like your first project, like just go ahead and write that. Um, so like I think console templates like 76,000 lines of code, not including vendor dependencies. Oh my God. Later, um, we have console template. Um, and then I had my like first, at the time the company was so small, we had one-on-ones with Armon and Mitchell individually. Um, I had my first one-on-one with Armon and he was like, yeah, sorry, I actually don't know how you didn't quit. Yeah. Um, he, he still talks about it, by the way. He's like, yeah, Seth would probably, he would have quit like the first week after we, I, we gave him console template. <laughs> But yeah, it was. I mean, it's a fun project. Um, it's still actively used on production systems a couple of times. It. I used it today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's it is interesting though. Like, it, it showcases how I think HashiCorp is a little bit different than other companies. Um, like Mitchell and Armand both wholeheartedly and somewhat jokingly admit the mistake they made and like they were very young founders at the time and had no idea how to run a company so like giving someone a project that would ultimately become one of the core um pieces of the hashicorp ecosystem and expecting them to complete in a week like that was a reasonable thing for them to consider and i think like they've come a long way in terms of like understanding hiring and onboarding and and like different people's different capabilities and, and giving people true onboarding projects. Um, but on the other side, like I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I learned more Go and more about distributed systems in one week than I think anyone on the planet has ever done. Um, and I was like only mildly stressed out once, um, but it was, it was fun. I think it was, um, it was a very interesting learning opportunity. I was very thankful that I was done, but also thankful for you know having been given the opportunity, given the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think the result we we see is is that you pretty much worked on like every tool. Like I remember before prior to joining HashiCorp, um, you were on every GitHub issue that I touched on, like different projects across across the ecosystem. Uh, you know, answering questions on Twitter, answering questions for the folks and even like, you know, sharing things like the roadmap and, and making sure everyone's like, you know, focused um, in term, uh, everyone's like on the same page when it comes to the roadmaps and stuff like that. So I really appreciate your work there. And then I, I also know that you worked on on what and what is something that I think it's, it's still it's pretty close to you. You still contribute to it. Still one of the core contributors to, uh, to Walt. So tell us your to tell us the story there. Like how did Walt come about, and what we know as HashiCorp Walt now in the in the public. Uh, so <clears throat> we had this tool at HashiCorp at the time. It was going to be the the next big thing called Atlas. Um, Atlas was effectively Terraform and Packer as a service. Um, it has since been sunset for a number of reasons. Um, but the challenge was that if you want to run both Packer and Terraform as a service, they need to connect to cloud providers, which means that users have to give us credentials in order to talk to their cloud providers. 
Um, and that was kind of weird, right? Like we could encrypt them, but we needed a way to prove to people that the, the information they were giving us was both secure and inaccessible by the average person. So R1 came up for the design for this thing that we were going to have inside of Atlas um, that would later become Vault. Um, it was just going to be this like tiny little closed source thing. We wrote a proof of concept for it. Um, and then I suggested it just become its own open source tool. Um, and we started specking it out. We started doing a lot of research, learned about Shamir's secret sharing algorithm. Um, Mitchell and Armand both did a lot of like kind of research and white papers and, and stuff on the background um, and came up with this idea for Vault. Uh, we wrote it mostly to use internally again. Like the plan was to open source it, but you know, whatever, eventually, right? Um, and I forget what we were talking to some customer at the time or like, yeah, we have the system. It does these things. This is why your credentials are secure, right? We were basically selling Atlas. I think Kevin was doing it, uh, talking to this customer about why we're, and they're like, wait, you have this system. What is this? What is this system? And they're very interested in this tool that we had built that, that did like dynamic acquisition of credentials, for example. Um, so we kind of took a step back and decided like maybe vault should be its own thing. Um, and it became its own thing. We kind of redid it from scratch, open sourced a lot of it, uh, or open sourced all of it, um, gave it a brand, gave it an identity, did a big announcement around it at a HashiConf. Um, and I think, you know, since then it's obviously kind of taken the market by storm. It's one of the leading secrets management and credential identity broking, brokering systems out there. Um, and it's, it's grown from even what we originally imagined it to be, you know, back in 2015. So with, um, with Vault, you, you seem to still be doing quite a bit of work on it. I mean, you, you sort of did a presentation at Next with, with Armon on Vault. Um, I saw you were doing a podcast um, a while back and, and, and sort of a few different things. Are, are a lot of those sort of self-led activities just because you're interested in the product and, and believe in it still or, or is, is there anything else? Yeah, so I mean, I do everything. Um, I'm not a big fan of sleep. Um, no, but um, I, I'm definitely working with Vault a lot. Um, in particular, um, how to run Vault in this new distributed containerized world where kind of Kubernetes seems to be eating most of the world um, and this this idea that like secrets need to change. Um, so I'm not just working with Vault. I'm still doing a lot with you know Chef and Terraform and a bunch of other tools in kind of the DevOps ecosystem. Um, you know I would say that it's partially self-led and partially because Google is very interested in enabling customers to choose what software they run on their platform. Um, obviously Vault is a a leader in the market. Um, it's open source. So people, um, you know, small customers and large customers are very interested in being able to audit the source code. So they're very interested in running it on different cloud providers like Google. Um, so, you know, we obviously have an interest in making our customers successful on our platform. Um, which is why you're seeing, you know, we're starting to do investing in things like the Google Cloud Storage backend. We wrote the Spanner backend, um, making improvements to, to the different plugins, including writing the, the GCP Secrets plugin, which will give you time-based IAM credentials, um, and you know some other stuff we have in the pipeline. Basically, just making sure that uh, if users want to use Vault on GCP, that they have the best possible experience, um, and that's ultimately our goal with any product, whether it's one we build internally at Google or some third-party open-source tool. Is if people are using it, we want to make them successful on our platform. That's really neat, and and I want to talk about Vault and and Kubernetes, but but I'm just wondering maybe it, it is worth backtracking just a little, just in case there are a few listeners who are not sort of familiar with Vault. So I mean, the Vault is obviously it's an open source secrets management platform, but 
maybe it's worth approaching it from the perspective of the developer or the the operator. So as a developer or an operator, like you know, you touched on on secrets and the need to be able to manage them. Well, but what does Vault give me? What is what can I do with Vault? Yeah, so I think there's four kind of fundamental pieces to talk about with Vault. Um, as a developer or an operator, I need access to secrets. Uh, as a human, right? I'm a human being. I need to connect to a database so that I can run some read-only command or get a schema. Um, as a human, I need to SSH into machines at some point in time because I need to debug something in the staging environment. Uh, but as an application, right, I need to to also get database credentials so that I can, as a as a as some code, right, I need to be able to talk to a database or a, a Redis instance, and I, I need to get information. Um, so there's two distinct audiences in the secrets management world. There's humans, operators, security teams, developers, and machines or services. Uh, those might be containers, they might be bare metal, they might be a Raspberry Pi. It doesn't matter. And we need a strategy for both of those entities, identities, to be able to access these credentials. So that's kind of the first bit is this identity brokering system where humans can authenticate with things via like username and password or GitHub, um, whereas machines can authenticate with things like TLS certificates or instance metadata, um, things that are very complex and, and cryptographic or cryptographically complex in nature. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing then is like... Vault has this idea of a key value store. You put data in, it gets encrypted in transit with TLS, and it rests with uh, AES-256 CBC encryption. Honestly, most software engineers could build something like that in an afternoon. It's just an encrypted key value store. Um, think of it as like encrypted Redis or encrypted memcached. But on top of that, it has a really powerful ACL system, right? And that's something that you probably wouldn't be able to build in an afternoon. And being able to give people read-only, read-write access, sub-pathing, et cetera, all of that's built into Vault's ACL system. But where Vault's real power comes from is this concept of dynamic credentials. So yes, I could create a database password and put it in the encrypted key value store. Great. But what would be better is if instead I could give Vault some credentials to actually connect to my database and have Vault generate those users. So instead of opening a JIRA ticket and having my DBAs create a username and a password to connect to my Oracle database, instead I configure Vault to talk to that Oracle database. I give it a username and password with privilege to create other users. Uh, I work with my DBAs to codify or capture that configuration as code. And then I programmatically generate these credentials. Uh, so any user can generate these credentials. They don't have to wait for the DBA. So you take something that's manual and you automate it. That whole process is then audited and logged. But what's different about those credentials is unlike the credentials that a DBA may create through a JIRA ticket, the credentials that Vault creates have a lifetime. They might live for 30 minutes. They might live for 24 hours. All of that is configurable. But at the end of that lifetime, those credentials expire. And this is very important because it prevents secret sprawl. It prevents hundreds of credentials living out there forever. It significantly reduces the surface area for an attack because even if an attacker or a hacker is able to gain access to those credentials, they have at most you know, 30 minutes or 24 hours to do something nefarious with those credentials. Those credentials can also be revoked early. So if you have some network intrusion detection system and you decide that a hacker is on your network, you can revoke them early. So even if they have them and it still hasn't hit the 30-minute mark, you can still revoke those credentials early. And again, that whole process is audited and logged. But what's really great is that each time an application, service, or human requests one of those credentials, it's unique. So if I have 10 services or 10 instances of one service and they all request a credential to my database, they all get a different credential. So whenever I'm looking in my audit log, 
logs or my database logs, I have what's called provenance, which is this one-to-one mapping between an application, service, or human back to the credentials that it's using. So I can know definitively that if I see anomalies from this one database user, I can tie that directly back to the application and know for certain or with high probability that that application has been compromised. Instead of having one database password everywhere, right? In which case you're like, I don't even know where to start. On the flip side of that too, if that one application is compromised, I take down just that one application and all of my other services continue to operate and function as needed because they're using different credentials, right? I'm not just revoking one credential that is kind of the keys to the kingdom. And this is a really great um, kind of architecture, if you will, for designing distributed systems, right? Because we we not only have to think about security in this onion-like approach where, you know, you, no longer do we have this overall firewall perimeter security where everything inside is trusted, but this idea that, that we are not as smart as hackers or we are not going to find all the vulnerabilities, right? You look at like the Spectre vulnerability, like there was no application code we could have written that would have prevented that, right? That's a core vulnerability in the way CPUs work. Um, We need to prioritize or at least emphasize revocability and time-based access over the security itself, right? Like we get to a certain bar of security and that's great. But then after that, we have to start thinking about our break glass procedure, our disaster recovery, our revocability. And that's really where Vault really helps build a, a really strong story around those patterns. So is, is Vault just for enterprises? Because what you're describing sounds like it's, it's pretty easy to use. No, I mean, it's definitely not for enterprises. I think enterprises benefit from some of Vault's enterprise features, like integrations with HSMs and things like that. But the open source version of Vault is really great for like even a small or mid-sized company. Um, You know, we ran Vault internally at HashiCorp when we were less than 20 people. Um, There are obviously some major banks and financial institutions that are running Vault at the same time. But you know, it works anywhere. Um, I would say, you know, maybe for like your home office, it's a little bit of overkill. Um, for personal use, you might want to leverage something like, you know, 1Password or LastPass or, you know, some type of GUI-based application. But for um, any kind of company or organization where you have to share credentials, I think Vault is a, a really great choice regardless of the size or the industry or the scale. Back, back onto sort of Kubernetes and and obviously, we, we, we've talked with um, Mitchell last time about the integration between Console Connect and Kubernetes. But um, does Vault and, do Vault and Kubernetes play, play nice together? I know that there's the obviously the Kubernetes authentication, but for, from a sort of a, a running an application perspective, is, is it a, a sort of an, a good process to, to be able to access secrets and, and things like that from, from Kubernetes? So I think there's two parts to the story. Um, the first part is, can I run Vault on Kubernetes the same way I would run an application or service? The second question is, now that I have Vault running, maybe it's on Kubernetes, maybe it's on Heroku, I don't know. Can I access it from Kubernetes? So let's talk about the first one. Um, yes, Vault runs really well on Kubernetes. Um, it specifically works even better on GKE, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but Vault has a container. It's published on the Docker Hub. So you can just pull the official container. Um, you can run that directly in GKE, or you can mirror it to the container registry if you'd like some faster start times. Um, I've published a set of Terraform configurations, and Kelsey Hightower has published a set of what I like to call Terraform configurations the hard way with the gcloud command um, that go through exactly how you set up a Kubernetes cluster on GKE 
with Vault deployed. And this cluster is deployed with the best practices and the production hardening guide that HashiCorp recommends. So, um, you know, we use memory locking, we use high availability, uh, leveraging a stateful set, which will give us both predictable naming and exactly one semantics. It has built an auto unsealing. Uh, basically, most of the operational overhead is taken care of by Kubernetes itself or some sidecar applications. So the reason that you might want to choose GKE over like your own Kubernetes cluster, for example, is um, the way we supply entropy to the containers and the VMs that are running on GKE. Um, we actually supply true random um, via vert RNG to the containers and the cluster itself. Um, so this gives you significantly more randomness, which gives you significantly better cryptographic distribution on your cluster. How does that compare to like uh, an HSM for, for, for entropy? Um, it's not quite as high of entropy as something like an HSM. Um, that being said, you, if you have the enterprise version of Vault, you could use the Google Cloud HSM product and connect it to that, um, which is a physical HSM and a physical data center that'll give you higher entropy. I don't know the exact numbers, um, but it's significantly more entropy than a standard VM with Docker. Um, you know, it, it mirrors much closer to like a bare metal source of randomness, but it's not quite as random as an HSM. And, and random is obviously incredibly important for anything that, that's cryptographically oriented. Yes. Um, if, if, if you're generating the same set of random numbers continuously, uh, you're going to have the same keys, you're going to have uh, very low probability distributions, very low curves. Um, it actually reminds me of a story. When I was in high school, we found that if you took a TI-84 calculator and did a factory reset on them, and then did equals rand, they would generate the exact same series of random numbers. So we really freaked out my physics professor whenever we told her that we could predict the random numbers that her calculator was going to produce. And we did a real quick like factory reset and handed it to her. And she was very flabbergasted. So yes, random is important. Random seeds are important, but having a solid source of random is important. Um, what you might find if you're running, say, like Kubernetes on-prem, or if you don't have, uh, if you're pulling from like dev random instead of dev rand, for example, um, you can actually block. So if Vault is trying to do something cryptographic and it can't generate enough random bytes or source enough random bytes, like dev random will block, which means all your operations are now blocked, waiting for more entropy in the system. Um, dev random doesn't have that problem, and obviously, if you hook up like a real virtual random device, you don't have that problem. Um, this is important as you start scaling Vault and running Vault kind of in a container, in an orchestrator, right? There's a lot of considerations to take care of in terms of, of randomness. I, I suppose the question that a lot of people are going to ask is, well, why not just use Kubernetes secrets? Yeah, so I think that's the other side of the question, which is now I have a Vault. Maybe I have like, maybe I have some other team that has given me an IP address where Vault exists. How do I get the credentials from there? Should I use Kubernetes secret? Should I have some sidecar application? I think there's a few things to consider here. There's a lot of stuff on the Kubernetes roadmaps that is going to roadmap that is going to make Kubernetes secrets better. The challenge with Kubernetes secrets right now, to date, is that they're stored, Base64 encoded, in etcd. So anyone with access to the etcd cluster effectively has plain text access to the secrets. And this is because Base64 is not encryption; it's just encoding. There are a lot of items on the roadmap to encrypt those values, provide sidecar encryption, etc. Um, there's been some work for KMS enveloping. Um, I believe there's a plugin that was published that actually lets you use a third-party KMS provider, including Vault's own transit backend, for encrypting data before it's written to etcd 
and automatically decrypting it when it comes out. I think there's a lot of merit there. I do think there's some exploration that we need to do in terms of the secure the security of that um, model, but also the operability of that model. Right now you have another system that you have to keep up and running in order to get those credentials and the overhead of doing that encryption and decryption. I think another pattern, and the pattern that Armand and I showcased at our next talk, uh, GCP Next, was this idea of running a sidecar container with a tool like Console Template or Env Console that basically does the whole Kubernetes uh, authorization process for you. It uses the service account, um, JWT token, authenticates to Vault, and pulls down a Vault token uh, and hands that to Console Template, and Console Template then presents as a file on disk in a virtual file system or an in-memory file system, the data to the application. And this pattern is really great because it means that you're not tying your application to Vault. You're instead tying your application to a config file, which it probably already has that type of coupling, let's be honest. So the idea here is that local development becomes a breeze. You have some stock kind of template that you use for local development. You can run a Vault server in local development if you want to. That's one of the reasons I love Vault is it's just Vault server-dev on any operating system. Or you could have stub data, right? You could have fake data in development, and you don't have that runtime dependency in development on Vault. Um, so this is why that abstraction is really nice. Um, so I, I do think that there's a lot of integrations that we could think about. Like, you know, maybe there's a world in which Kubernetes secrets are an abstraction, and we could write a Kubernetes secrets plugin that is actually for Vault, and someone might run might run might write one for CyberArk, and someone might white run for you know KMS, et cetera. Like, but I, I don't think we're in a world where that has really been proposed yet. I know it's been talked about a few times. There's no RFCs or anything put forward yet, though. Um, but I would personally like to see Kubernetes secrets be something a little bit more pluggable than just this direct to etcd backend. Just back back onto yourself. So what what's next with with Seth? And I mean, I'm I'm pretty fascinated to find out what what's what's coming up. What what are you thinking about? Uh, What's interesting, got a, got a bit of a sparkle in the back of your eye there around new technology or, or something like that? I mean, obviously the blockchain, right? I mean, that's what... Uh, like, so, I mean, I'm I'm dumbstruck that Google doesn't have a managed blockchain. It, it really makes me sad. It's, uh, when, when's that coming? Uh, I can't discuss upcoming products that may or may never exist. Um, I actually, I, I try not to say the B word a lot, Um but it's actually funny because most people don't know this, but Vault's enterprise implementation for replication is actually based on the blockchain. Um, but it was based on the blockchain far before blockchain was important. Um, so the way Vault does performance replication is via Merkle trees, um, which are hashes of hashes, which is what the blockchain <laughs> is. Um, so it's actually really funny. Uh, I was being funny, but then I realized that like there's actually a tie back into Vault here. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of of what's next, um, the landscape is rapidly changing, particularly with containers and orchestrators. Um, and I, I like to play hypothetical scenarios in my mind, which is like 10 years from now, everyone in the world is running on some orchestration framework, whether that's Kubernetes or Nomad or Mesosphere. Um, no one cares about VMs. No one cares about bare metal or most people, like the vast majority of people don't care about that. Like what's next? Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting things that we're working on at Google that have really caught my eye, particularly around like voice commands, right? The Google Assistant, things like Duplex, um, and how companies can build deep integrations with those AI-based tools. Um, the stuff we announced at Next around um, Cloud SQL, or sorry, around BigQuery SQL as 
a language for machine learning. You don't need a PhD in machine learning. You can now write SQL and you're doing machine learning, which is crazy, right? That opens a whole new world for people. I think that's exciting. But really what I, what I want to look at is like, what's the next big problem, right? If you look like in the 1980s, um, it was like, how do I get physical machines into a data center? Like we solved that, right? Thanks FedEx. Um, and then, and then like the nineties came along and it's like, how do I virtualize these machines to maximize isolation and resource consumption? And like, that's where, you know, Hyper-V and VMware and the different hypervisors, XHive and Beehive and all that stuff came from, right? Great, we've solved that. 2000s come along and it's like, okay, well, VMs are great and I'm using resources, but I need an isolation layer for my application now. I need to run 50 versions of Ruby. So we have user land isolation, right? And that's where containers came in. Um, so like, what's next, right? Like what what's the next isolation layer we need? What's the subcomponent of a container, um, if there is one? Or is it higher level? Is it like, you know, are we moving to a world that's more Heroku-like, which is like, I just push some code and it runs somewhere and I don't actually care if it's a container or a pod or an app or a service or a, and I just want to know, like, you know, get it a credential, talk to the database and I don't want to think about it. Misha and I were just talking the other day. And um, so when, when are we going to get Go on Google Cloud Functions? Um, so we announced at Google Cloud Next the ability to run Google Cloud Functions as any container. Um, that's currently an alpha, so you can register for early access to that if you're interested. Obviously, Go runs in a container. So does Java. So does Node.js. So does Python. So does Crystal. Um, anything you want to run at that point will work on GCF. And I think this is really the future. Um, we, you know, we talked a lot about like building first-class language support for Go and and other languages, um, and it, it's really just not feasible for us to support the vast matrix. We're always going to be leaving some language behind, either because we don't have the expertise in that language um, or because the language evolves much faster than we push new updates to Google Cloud Functions. So by giving you an arbitrary base container from which you can run your function, we effectively allow you to run any language. You can pack your own dependencies in your own container in your own private Google Cloud registry uh, container registry and like you'll have faster startup time faster boot time faster cold boot time because you're pulling from gcr and you can run in whatever language you want including your own proprietary whatever language you wrote in-house that you're never going to share with anyone i i really like that as an approach um i'm i'm 100 behind that the, the, i think the dependencies thing is the the key thing so you know you maybe if you want to do something like image magic like trying to get that to run in a, a cloud function is um, is awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out and have a have a play around with that. Do you think this is gonna be a, a sort of a future direction for cloud functions? Because it it kind of makes sense. I mean, it's it's not difficult to to create a language container for um, for, for your function and actually packaging with something like Docker is 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 pretty pretty easy as well. It's it's almost as easy as as uh, zipping something up. Is this going to be like a future direction or is that sort of still a little bit un unclear? So, I mean, it's currently in alpha, so we're testing it out. Um, we've obviously built it and we're kind of getting people's feedback on it. Um, if all of our customers and future customers are like, yes, we love this, this is the future, then it's the future. If our customers are like, yeah, this solves 1% of my use case, then it's probably not the future, right? It's just a future. Um, I don't think we know that yet. Yeah, I think it sounds pretty dope. So I'm... Uh... I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think it's been amazing to to talk to you, Seth. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to catch up with you and, and see you again, uh, regardless. But really, want to sort of thank you for for spending the time. I know, um, like. 
just quick question. Where, where the hell in the world are you right now? I'm actually at home right now, uh, which is very rare, but I go to New York on Wednesday. Can, can we get a fact check on that? <laughs> we don't believe that yet. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you my location on iMessage. <laughs> so, Seth, Seth, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. This has been incredibly interesting, like amazing conversations all the way from uh, your past to to what we are talking about today in terms of like, you know, serverless computing and things like that. Uh, one final, like, I think the most important question, it has the nothing to do with question. Yeah, it is the most important question. It has nothing to do with the podcast or what, what we talked about in the podcast. But uh, I hope I hope you're, you're ready for this because this is like really important stuff. Uh, so if you were an ingredient in a hamburger. Or a vegan burger or a veggie burger, just in right. case you, you don't eat. Right. Okay. Uh, what would you be and why? That is a tough one. Um, yeah, I mean, two answers come to mind. I think first and foremost, if I were an ingredient in the hamburger, I would have to be the hamburger. Um, but if that's not an option, I think Worcester sauce is probably my go-to. I think it gives, especially if you're grilling the burgers, there's not enough information here to solve the problem. We need to take this back to the product managers and get more information. <laughs> but I would say if we're grilling these burgers, especially on an open flame grill, like a petrol grill, um, we would we would definitely need Worcester sauce. It gives it that kind of smoky flavor, but also like a little bit of tang, almost like a sweet and sour. Um, but it really helps the burger um, stay moist on the inside and the outside. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably what I would go for. So so, com- so I was going to say comparing that to your to your role at Google. So are you the the thing that gives all of Google's products that that little bit of a tang and and just adds that little bit extra flavor? And uh... I'm like that that animated GIF where they sprinkle like glitter everywhere. That's that's me. <laughs> what about you, Nick? Um, oh man, you know I was thinking bacon because well why not? But I actually think cheese because I think. Uh, I like, I don't know why, but I just really like cheese. <laughs> cool. All right. So uh, thank you so much, Seth, uh, for making this time. I, we all appreciate this. And this is a rare opportunity, but I'm glad we, you were able to make some time for us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Cheers, Seth. Cheers. Bye-bye. You've been listening to HashiCast with your hosts, Misha and Nick. Today's guest has been Seth Fargo from Google. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. 